Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and this is the Highlighter Article Club, where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. This month, we're diving into Looking for Clarence Thomas by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Mitchell S. Jackson. It was published in Esquire back in August, and when I read it, I knew immediately that I had to reach out to Mr. Jackson to see if he would say yes to doing Article Club. I have to admit, I was a little nervous to contact him because if you don't know, he won the Pulitzer Prize for 12 Minutes and a Life, his profile of Ahmaud Arbery. But then I listened to some of his other interviews, like the one he did for Longform, and he seemed like a good guy, so I went for it and emailed him. And the generous guy that he is, he said yes. Article clubber Sarai and I got the chance to speak with Mr. Jackson a week or so ago, and I have to say, it was one of my favorite interviews over the last three years. I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Thank you, Mr. Jackson, so much for doing Article Club. Thank you for having me. Uh, Sarai and I are here to ask you tons of questions. Um, I'll just show you. We've marked up the text of uh, looking for Clarence Thomas, so we're ready. Really excited to just ask you some questions. But first, we're also huge fans of your last huge piece uh, about Ahmaud Arbery. And mm -hmm. we just wanted to ask you right at the beginning, how did it feel when you learned that you had won the Pulitzer Prize? Oh, it was surreal. The way that it happened last, well, I guess it wasn't last summer, or was it? Maybe it was. They, the, the National Magazine Awards had been postponed, so it was the night before the Pulitzer announcement. And so I, I attended virtually the National Magazine Awards, and there was, you know, it's an in-person thing, so you don't know if you're going to win. And they announced the winner for feature writing at the end of the show. So now I got to sit through a whole award show. And then there was the jubilation of winning. And uh, I was excited. I didn't really know how excited to be until a, a guy who worked at Hearst emailed me right after. And he was like, Mitch, this is our version of the Oscar. And I was like, oh man, like that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So then the next day where the Pulitzer and so I was like, you know, there's no chance of you know, you win it. So I was like, I'm just going to take a nap. And uh, right before I lay my head down, right before I could get into a, a good sleep, I got a call from uh, my friend, Tayemba Jess, who went to graduate school with me, but also more importantly, won a Pulitzer, I think in maybe 2017 for poetry. And Jess was like, man, congratulations. And I was like, congratulations on what? I'm like, he could have been talking about the National Magazine Award. And he was like, man, you want to pull us? I was like, get out of here, man. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was very exciting. And also I, it was surreal in that I didn't know if I actually won because they do it on Twitter. So, I mean, they could have made a mistake. Like I'm not on Twitter. So it didn't really hit me for probably a day or so. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And like when we read the piece, it was just at that highest level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I put out four articles a week and this was like your piece was like the best one of the entire year. I like to say that I predicted the Pulitzer for you, but <laughs> just wanted to, you know, because I was first, I didn't tell you about that, but okay. yeah. And then when I read this piece, you know, I was like, okay, he's at that same level. And so um, Sarai's got the first big question just about like how you started the piece. So go ahead, Sarai. Yeah, I like to ask, 
everyone we talked to about how their pieces are technically written and mm -hmm. some of the kind of choices that they make and the ways they kind of pull readers in or kind of just like put readers in a certain like context right mm -hmm. from the beginning of the piece. And I believe that the way that you have the Gullah language and the translations like right off the top, it centers the importance of like where all of this is coming from, especially yeah. considering the denouncing of that of that language and of that yeah. space that that happens later with Clarence Thomas. So I just, I love to ask, like, what are you thinking when that, when that's beginning that first part of your piece? Like yeah. what is, what is at the forefront when you're making those choices? So um, I should back up a little bit and say the Clarence Thomas piece was not even my idea to write. It was my editor, Ryan D'Agostino at Hearst, who is, he was also one of the editors on the Ahmaud Arbery piece. He's like, man, Mitch, I got a story for you. And I was like, well, what is it? He was like, man, Clarence Thomas. No, like, no. Uh, nah, yeah. I'm like, what the hell? No. Nah. <laughs> so then he was like, yeah, we can team write this thing. And I'm like, team write? Like, I've never team wrote anything. Like, how are we going to do that? And so he's like, oh, man, we'll figure it out along the way. So we actually did research for this piece together. So a lot of those trips that I took, like when I was in Pinpoint, he was there. He was the, the white guy going up asking people, can we interview you? But during that time, when we went to Pinpoint, we met one the guy that ends up telling us the story of Thomas's birth. And between that and going to visit the old cannery or the fishery where uh, there was a woman guide there who spoke Gullah, and it was the first time that I had heard it. And I was like, how, how hard can it be? Like, you know, I, I speak, you know, Ebonics, like I'm sure I can catch it. And she said a sentence to me and I said, oh, I don't know what you just said. Um, and so... I, heard, I actually had visited her first. And then when I went to his, where Thomas was born, uh, actually, I didn't know it. I was going to his friend's house and then his friend pointed and said, yeah, he was born right over there. And it was like a hundred yards away. And as soon as he said it, I said, oh, I'm going to do this guy's birth in Gullah. So in the beginning, I thought I was going to be able to learn Gullah, <laughs> be able to write it myself. And then I, I resisted the piece so, so, so long. Like I actually wrote this piece in like seven days. Mm. Um, that by the time I, by the time I actually sat down to write it and the, and the opening was the first, I knew there was no way I was gonna be able to do the gullah. So luckily Ryan found the guy who translated it for me. But instantly when I heard a woman speaking it, I mean, I had already read about Thomas and his relationship to it, but when I heard someone speak it and then I was literally standing a few feet from where he was born, I said, oh, I'm gonna do the story of this guy's birth. Mm, wow. It seems that like another aspect of that is like it really because when you have translations of something you're like okay this is these are the two languages that are important you're mm -hmm. gonna miss something if yeah. you don't have this translation and the people who um would need a Gullah translation because English is inaccessible yeah. um that is not often some some things that we think about so the ways that it kind of trickles down no yeah. no Republican pun intended yeah. like the way that Thomas's individual attention to people mm -hmm. versus a group attention to people like is offset kind of by the way that your translation appears in the beginning and yeah. I feel like your word choices throughout the piece like the vocabulary like the ways that you choose to write mm -hmm. it really shifts the ways that people are allowed to understand writing and allowed to read and access like you know critical thought Mm -hmm. So I find that 
that combined with the translations in the beginning really add a layer of complexity to the piece. I'm just wondering like a little bit more about that. What are you thinking when you're making those choices in your writing? So I, I should, I, I do want to clarify. I did write it in seven, but it, it wasn't, I mean, this was editing too, right? So I wrote, so I wrote that opening and I kind of, I had no, I had to send it off because obviously I couldn't translate it myself. Uh, and I should also say that the way that the, and I forget his name now, I should know this, the way that he translated it, he actually sent it back with my words and then his words. And I, I in, the, in the opening, in the beginning, I was thinking of having it side by side. But when I read his in the way that he had sent it back to us, I was like, oh, this works. In terms of the language, though, I'll say that's all. If you read anything that I, Alfonso Brown, yeah, Alfonso Brown sent that translation back in that way. And I thought it, to me, I, I wasn't missing anything. And uh, it was something to seeing it kind of stacked up on each other. The language, uh, I'm always trying to kind of undercut this highfalutin, academic intellectuality and, and to do it with language. And I also felt like, you know, as a Supreme Court justice, there's so much, there's so much gravitas given to that position, so much esteem that I wanted to bring Clarence Thomas down to a human, which is also why I use the Gullah. It's, I mean, the Gullah is one thing, but it's also the story of his birth. Like, no, nah, this guy was just a little nappy head boy running around barefoot in the woods at one point, right? So, so, so all of that is really coming out of the same place. It's like, I want to bring him down to the level of the rest of us. And if the language can help me do that, then but, you know, the risk is also that you humanize him. Like, I, I remember sending the opening to uh, someone and they were like, don't make me like this guy. And I was like, don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to tell the truth, you know, but you got to tell the whole truth. And the whole truth was that he was this young person, you know, who had these aspirations. And, and I'm like also thinking to myself, what would it have been like to only speak Gullah? Mm -hmm. Right. Because like I, if we had had a conversation, like if I came from Oregon and met this dude when he was five years old, I would not have known what he was saying, right? So, so I, I also had to be aware of that. But yeah, I do think the language is key and I'm really always trying to push against what everyone says is convention. Yeah, one piece that I noticed um, about the language is also the directness right to the reader right after you introduce his childhood. So I don't think that I was worried that you were going to have some sort of compassionate sort of characterization of Clarence Thomas. But then you made sure to like just let me know how you felt. And also you use his words sort of against him right from the beginning. You say, uh, he says... Uh, you hate yourself for being part of a group that's gotten the hell kicked out of them. And then you call that the Rosetta Stone. Can you say a little bit more about the Rosetta Stone piece? Yeah, I mean, I just thought, you know, you at a certain point I was having a conversation and I should also mention a guy named Mark Warren who was a previous editor at Esquire, now at Random House, who just worked with me and Ryan on this. When it was gonna be a team written piece, he was gonna be the editor for it. And then at a certain point, Ryan said, oh, I'm a white guy, I can't write this piece, which which, which is a part of the reason why it, it turned into seven days because I thought I was gonna be doing a different kind of thing. But yeah, the Rosetta Stone, I think is really, I mean, you know, you, we had a conversation, it was like, well, what are we trying to ask about? Like, what are we, and I was like, man, we're, we're looking for Clarence, man. We're trying to find out like, who the hell is the real Clarence? And so that reading that um, line, which I think comes from his memoir, to me felt, 
very crucial in understanding him, right? Um, I know a lot of Black people, and I don't know a lot of Black people who express that sentiment. And I think that is really, I mean, if you look at the way that he has publicly spoken about Black people, if you look at a lot of his jurisprudence, I mean, if you look at his personal life choices, like that felt like he was telling on himself in, uh, you know, a perfect uh, an encapsulation of how to read him. That makes me, because I was in my head a couple of times, I was mm. like, I'm going to get on here and I'm going to make an ass of myself because I'm going to say something that makes people think that I'm okay with Clarence Thomas because yeah. like you do present a, a picture you know of him like fuck this guy like multi the multiple fucks by the way was really comforting in this piece <laughs> like the different ways that you just slid those in there yeah. super comforting as mm -hmm. a reader because you know when something's written for you right and if there's yeah. no way that you respond with something like that while you're reading like you're kind of aware that that wasn't written for you but I digress mm -hmm. um because at the end of the piece and Mark has more on this I think a little bit but you do present a humanizing picture of him and you mm -hmm. do present, okay, this is a black man. This is a person who, who has, you know, sold us out in multiple ways, but he still has a beginning. He still has an origin story kind of yeah. thing. Um, and to me, like he's, it, this is really representative of the ways that there's a spectrum of ways that people deal with white violence and white rage and the ways mm -hmm. that white people, you know, attack. Um, and Clarence Thomas has chosen a piece of the spectrum where he is wanting, like you say in the piece, like he's wanting to prove that he's okay by their standards. He's mm -hmm. wanting to denounce his own people in ways that will make him aligned with, you know, good enough, like you're, you know, definitely want to bring James Baldwin, your quote by James mm -hmm. Baldwin into this mm -hmm. about that limbo aspect. Yeah. But I want to know more about like what you're thinking about this piece, like what he's responding to, like, how do you go from being this this person yeah. South Carolina to being Clarence Thomas like did you find him like did were you able <laughs> to find him in writing this piece like what do you think because I agree like I did not part of this I did not want to read about Clarence Thomas's life I was like I do not care like what yeah. points are you making but you yeah. do make some very clear points about what you think and I'm just wondering like did you find Clarence yeah well <laughs> I think um early on I was talking to a friend about this piece and he said, well, everybody knows Clarence Thomas is a sellout. And I was like, yeah. So then if that's ground zero, then where do you go from there, right? Like, I don't think there's any dispute among reasonable people that Clarence Thomas is by almost definition a sellout. And so, but that can't, I can't just write a whole 6,000 words saying Clarence Thomas is a sellout. And so then I was really trying to get into, I, I in interviewing people, most of the people who would actually talk to me were people who were his friends who had very kind things to say and they were you know talking to me about his kindness and how he would stay after at assemblies and talk to kids and you know do all these kind things and I was like well there has to be a seed of humanity in there and so what is that humanity and then how does that how is that still present but then how is he also able to do these really dramatically malevolent things to wide swaths of Americans. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't think if I don't have any answers outside of, you know, I think Pinpoint was really crucial and mm. I don't know if it really came through it in the way that Pinpoint allows him to like keep a hold of his roots, but also, 
he's like, it's like a hagiography. Like he can, he's, he's a hero when he goes home, right? Everywhere you go, it's a sign that says Clarence Thomas was here. He used to use this library. I mean, when you go to Pinpoint, it's like, welcome to Pinpoint, hometown of Clarence Thomas, you know? So, so I think to be able to go, like whatever he does out in DC, and, and he's also built a world in DC, right? Which is disconnected from the real world like he's in the far right like he's not even a republican like he's in the he's in a, a whole other universe and so to be in that universe and to tell yourself well, i'm a black man i actually think that i'm doing right by people and to go home and still be a hero like i feel like that's that is crucial to the way that he is able to persist and endure because wow. everything else is such a deep contradiction wow right? He is such a deep contradiction. And I don't know how you can maintain those paradoxes without getting some kind of positive feedback. Well, I mean, one part is that the limbo part. So like, yeah, yeah so you weren't going to write 6,000 words on something that everybody already knows about. Yeah. But I felt like one of the big contributions was, oh, by the way, I'm just going to bring in James Baldwin here in the middle, rather. Like, you, it, it felt, <laughs> I, I want to hear about like how you came upon that quote, because yeah. I hadn't necessarily seen that one, but also where you placed it. And then it just felt like it really opened up this idea that he's mm -hmm. isolated as as powerful as he is, he might be yeah. isolated, or it's like, so how did you get to that limbo part and James Baldwin? I, I was thinking about that limbo early on because I, I'm an educator as well. And I've taught that essay. Um, I mean, I used to teach it every semester, probably for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, if Black English isn't a language, then tell me what is, is the title of the essay. And uh, yeah, so, so in my head early on, I was like, oh, yeah. Well, actually, no. I would say that it kind of crystallized in thinking about him being at those kind of far right conferences with his wife and knowing that those people are people who hate him, right? Like you out here clapping for Jenny and these are the same people running in the Capitol and ties to white supremacy, right? So I'm like, those aren't your people, right? And then I'm like, well, every time you talk to a black person and he says like, you know, if you ask him, I think he would say that he's down for black people, right? But I don't know a black person who was who would cape for, for Clarence Thomas. So if the people who you are with are not your people and the people who you claim are your people like, man, you in a bad spot. Like I can't imagine you could get a group of a thousand people who were actually his tribe together. Um, and that must be a really sad existence for someone who at so many turns in his life has looked for that acknowledgement, right? And that community. I definitely was like, fuck Claire Thomas. Like, I don't <laughs> care. Like, you know, like I was like, I don't care. Cause we Mark and I were discussing this loneliness and this like humanity. And in my yeah. brain, I'm like, I don't care. Like, Me, yeah. At the like, end of the I, day, who like, I, who cares? Bob's you know? story. So but, what? Yeah. But like, but him you then using the black card with the um Anita Hill with the with the lynching situation, the whatever yeah. part. And then the way you place the description of what an actual lynching was. Yeah. Like that dissonance, the dissonance that is created in his mind, I cannot even imagine. Right. Um, but then for him to turn around and use this, you know, what you call or what is in the essay, a race card yeah. um, after he has taken every single opportunity to disregard the group's call for for justice. Like, yeah. a, like what does that kind of dissonance do to a person? And yeah. also, like, what were your choices in including 
this description of this lynching, this woman being hung upside mm-hmm. down with her baby. And for example, like what happened with Ahmad Arbery, like the, yeah. the discussions of what you, like, what were your decisions there? Like, how were you, because you could, we could have used several examples to describe yeah. why that wasn't a lynching, my man, and why yeah. you sound ridiculous. <laughs> but like, yeah. what, you know, what was going on there? Well, one, I, I absolutely had um, Ahmad and what I had said about that in that story. And, uh, you know, thinking about the the NAACP's definition, I didn't want to repeat that. But I also wanted to really point to lynchings that happened in his area. So I wanted it, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't be just disconnected, right? Like those are all things that happened in his area. And I wanted to point to things that were like, you know, because I mean, every lynching is important right the lives of all of those people are important but there are certain ones which are so heinous and and either reported or underreported right so yeah I really so there were over the course of this thing which was this was like six months worth of research begrudging that get <laughs> down to it's a Tuesday and they're like man we need copy by Saturday right so but but there were a lot of conversations along the way lots and lots of interviews and conversations and certain things would happen so I when I, when I was in pinpoint I said oh I'm going to do this opening in Gullah I knew that from very early on before I said any words down on this thing along the way I when when I was reading about Anita Hill I said oh I am going to do a list of lynching like I knew that going in so there were certain things like when I was thinking about Baldwin and that quote like I knew that that quote was going to be there so there were just markers along the way of things that I knew I wanted to include and then it was just kind of seeing it built out and then recognizing where those um, pieces could fit And and the last thing was the one trip that I took that was by myself was to DC and that was like maybe 10 days before the story was due. And I did it because I, I, I had been talking, we had already decided that we were looking for Clarence Thomas and, and that was going to be the title. And I was like, I can't look for Clarence <laughs> Thomas and not go to DC. Like, like, well, the Supreme Court is closed. I'm like, yeah, but that's almost the point too. Um, so I was very, very thankful that I pushed to go in those last few days to DC. I mean, it was really enlightening to see where he lived, to see how placid that um, subdivision was, to see the, 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 I don't know, US Marshals out front, to go to the court and see the long, tall fence. Like to me, that was all very much a part of this. And also to engage with those those protesters and that solemn um, young black woman, that was, uh, I think that was all really necessary. And it was something that was a, a writerly choice that I made alone. Like, I'm going to just get on this plane and I'm going to go to DC. I don't really have a plan, but I'm going to get in this rental car and I'm going to go to this dude's house. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I must say the piece about um, interacting with this Black woman that was there and the fact that Clarence Thomas used this Black card against a Black yeah. woman who was accusing yeah. him. I just need, I don't, I don't have a question. I just need yeah. to like add well, another tally to the reasons why like I don't fuck with him. But like, yes. The irony yeah. of that being across the street from where those um, mm-hmm. hearings took place wasn't it was it was lost on me in the moment like I didn't know that we were standing across from that building but when I went back and researched I was like oh we were literally a hundred feet from where the hearings actually took place so to me that gave it that much more 
emphasis. Yeah, you talk about like the writerly choices, not just to go to Washington, but also the language and what you're trying to do with language. Sarai and I were talking before about, it's like all of the decisions that you make, the details, but also the structure and the organization. Mm -hmm. um, we read a ton of these articles, the highest quality articles. And what we were talking about earlier, wanted to ask you about is that it just seems that not only are you at the highest level, but you're doing something new. Mm -hmm. And especially in sort of like white dominated publications, mm -hmm. um, you are now offering something that's not just the highest quality, but it's changing, I feel, what long form, I was using the word canonically. And just wanted you to sort of speak to that as far as like, I mean, obviously you're, you're trying to also get the, the copy in. Yeah, um, and we're, and, <laughs> no, they wanted it, <laughs> and we and we want to know, like, like out of all of this, your entire endeavor that you're on, mm -hmm. you know, like, how much of it are you? I guess, how aware are you uh, of your readers, and like, mm -hmm. what what we are getting out of your writing? It's a lot. We're getting a lot out of it. <laughs> I think the thing that is different. I wouldn't call myself a journalist, one. You know, I come out of fiction writing. I have an MFA, two MFAs really in, in fiction. And so I came to this with that set of skills. And in my mind, the other thing about my fiction is I'm very much concerned with the sentence. I'm almost concerned with the sentence over the story. And so the benefit of writing nonfiction is that you don't have to invent the scenes, but the, the kind of ethos of um of of wanting to make beautiful sentences is like that's that's really what I what I want to do and I also think if you're going to write a feature there should be some break from convention and it's easier for me cuz I don't know all the conventions but there's, hey. a, there's one thing <laughs> that I'm trying to do like there's the gullah there there's the long list uh at the end of Mari and uh, uh, and what you should know about mod I wrote a piece for the New York Times magazine last summer and there's a list of names and it's, it's, they're actually my childhood friends and so I'll give a list the name and then uh, what do they um like a, some characteristics about them and uh, I'm actually writing another piece for them right now and trying to imagine like what is the thing that is going to break this out of convention because I actually don't want to do it if it's just a straight some people were like well you could just write a, a straight ahead feature no I'm not interested in that. Like I'm interested in trying to push myself and if in pushing myself, the form goes somewhere, that's great. But uh, yeah, I think, I think a journalist comes in going, what's the story, right? And what's the information? And I come in thinking like, what art can I make of this? And what music can I make of this? And then this, you know, you have to still do the reporting work, but I think those are like two different um, like, paradigms actually right so I don't have a journalist paradigm like I'm not trying to get to the big story you know like I actually like doing stories of the smaller people rather than this is a, one of my aversions to writing about Clarence Thomas I'm like man I don't want to see no more Clarence Thomas pieces or Jenny right so um yeah I do I I'm, I'm thankful that people can see that I'm trying to push myself in form uh and in language because that is that's always the goal. That's the goal before anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Jackson, Mitchell, Mitch. <laughs> uh, we could keep on asking you questions, but also just uh, Sarai, any any last questions for, for our author here? Similarly, I, I could go on for days, but I feel really good about, you know, about what we talked about. Mm -hmm. But I just, yes, 
in terms of the way you're talking about pushing your form and pushing your or not necessarily looking to push the form but rather pushing yourself in ways Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's really awesome there's like a lot of especially being in education like there's a lot of emphasis to pay attention so that you can break the rules and like hearing you say like you're not even sure of the rules and you're out here winning Mm -hmm. Pulitzers like (laughs) who knows you know what I'm saying like it's really refreshing like I was saying the language the shifts like all the ways that you're um, inviting and also setting the tone and setting the stage and also wrapping it up for us like in the timeline like really giving the kind of this is empirical evidence like what yeah. I'm saying is what, I, what I'm saying this is it like and having really you know you can tell you're standing on your voice in this piece and that's mm. really 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 refreshing and, and mm. much appreciated thank you so much thank you Thank you. Just want to thank you so much again. I mean, obviously we're into reading. Um, you know, we're not, well, like we're educators. I'm not a writer. Sarai is a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the folks in Article Club are just folks who like to read the top stuff. And so mm-hmm. just to be able to speak with you today and for you to be so generous, we just really want to thank you so much. Thanks, man. I had a good time, man. Thank you all for reading it. Um, yeah, I hope it keeps finding its way to an audience. One more time, I'd like to thank Mitchell S. Jackson for coming onto Article Club and for sharing your process and your craft with us. You truly are doing something new in the long-form nonfiction genre, and we at Article Club are very grateful for that. Article Clubbers, we're going to be discussing Looking for Clarence Thomas on Sunday, October 23rd from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Pacific Time. And if you're interested, you can find out more information and sign up at highlighter.cc slash discussion. Also, feel free to email me at mark at highlighter.cc with any questions that you have. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening and see you next time.